Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Okay, I'm going to count down, and we're going to start. You good? You good with that? We're starting over. You're not keeping any of that other stuff? No, I already deleted it. Okay. With this riveting discussion about... That would have been fun to put in there, but anyway... Okay, three, two, one, go. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 51, one after 50, downhill to 100. It's actually two after 49. It is actually two after four. <laughs> I'm glad you guys have math I figured out. I number one. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, in this yes. episode, we're going to talk more about, it's more about contentment, right? We're in that same theme? Yeah, it's like a sub-theme. We're going to talk about boredom, but it relates to contentment, I think. Boredom. And contentment sounds like a really boring podcast, Andy. It, oh, it does. I like that. That's good. <laughs> That's good. That's it right there. As another eye roll. Ooh, we're at two. That's a lot of eye rolls. <laughs> I think he's just you know. okay. A couple of introductory thoughts for you. If you haven't had a chance to listen yet, in episode fifty, as a celebration of being halfway to hundred, we had a special guest. His name is Tim Challies. That was a fun interview. You can go back and listen to that. There's a lot of good stuff there. I actually, after talking to him, started reading some of his books. Uh, I read some of his books before we talked to him, but then uh, I actually have had Do More Better for a long time, and I kind of skimmed it. I've never been really into productivity books because I feel they fall into one of two categories. Here's a nifty trick, or you need to try harder, which, uh, you know. Doesn't help you. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't always help. But he does start with, uh, There's. I wrote a quote down, and then I don't have the uh, the quote book here with me, but... Uh, more or less, there's no app or uh, productivity book that's going to change your character. He says that, I think, in chapter two or three. It's my, it's my paraphrase, but it's really good. I like how he ties it to sanctification. Yeah. Because a lot of those books, I love productivity books, but you're right. A lot of them are a trick. Or what was the other thing he said? Nifty, yeah. nif- nifty app. tricks, apps. Yeah, apps. Yeah. And it, it's true. It's, you're not going to change your character with an app. And, you know, and... You know, there's there's an idea for a book that I have floating around in my mind is like how to Ooh. be productive when you're not productive. Ooh. But <laughs> because here's here's what they all do. I feel like all of the books sort of like plan that. together for when you're at the highest level of motivation, but none of them address when you're not motivated. Ooh. It's good. I like none it. of them are like, oh, you don't want to do anything. Now what do you do? It's like you pick up a productivity book when you're motivated. It's like I want to do something. Ooh, that sounds right? like a good podcast episode that you could start with. Yeah, or maybe a blog. Mm. You know, I found out that that could be a lucrative career. So, <laughs> don't bank on it. <laughs> so seriously, you're really good at titles. That's a good title. What's What's the title? The title of your book: How to Be Productive When You're Not Productive, or whatever. Yeah, like you've got. So far, I have one tip. Ooh, and this is free for you listening. This will be in the book someday. If you're going to play video games, listen to a podcast while you do it. Oh, there you go. There you go. Oh, Tim, that was that was an eye roll. That wasn't an eye roll. That was like a scar. It was like a full body convulsion. <laughs> oh man. Okay, that really so good. that was just introductory. I was I was just trying to promote. Hey, if you haven't listened to the Challies episode, go back and listen to it. We're also trying to get to 200 Instagram followers, and we're at 195. Five. Just checked. So we need five souls to come to the light. The uh, Thinklings would, podcast. Just, heard that just create another account and like it again. So then we're there. <laughs> it's like that meme. <laughs> okay, never mind. Are you saying we create? I'm not. We gonna. create more accounts, or they create more accounts. <laughs> I never get on Instagram, so. <laughs> I also realized that we also our personal accounts we follow the Thinklings podcast. Oh. So does that count? Like, 
Oh, boy, that's Are we tough. really at 192? Probably need to get to 204. Is that, are we like con- computing FTE now or something? Or? <laughs> well, Horrendous. on that note, on that, that's starting to sound like a faculty meeting. Oh, that's not a faculty meeting. That's something else entirely. All right. Let's see it. See it. See it. We've got Moving some Thinklings on. business to tend to. Books FTE. and business. <laughs> Horrendous. Okay, I'll books, start. Books, say books and business again. I catch up. <laughs> books and business. Oh. Go ahead, Andy. Okay, <laughs> That's the best ever. It's okay. Friday afternoon. It is. We're all goofy. We're all I'm just ready for an Iowa football game. Yeah. Well, actually, you're probably not as caffeinated as Tim and I because we no. just yeah. you're on a caffeine fast, aren't you? Uh, well, I've I've for the most part given up caffeine. <gasps> I think it has to be before. I, if I had to draw a hard cutoff, and hey, if you want to, if you want to know why I did this, there's actually a book I'll probably review in a few weeks or so. It's called Why We Sleep. Uh, but that author was on a podcast with another doctor, and they were talking about how caffeine affects sleep. And uh, it's like it's hard for me to argue with uh, some of the points they made. Mm. Uh, and so, for sure, I used to have a rule: I'm not going to drink caffeine after two in the afternoon. And I realized that that maybe isn't good enough. So now that time has uh, become earlier, maybe like nine or ten in the morning. Uh, but I have the last couple times. I went this morning. I went over to Porchlight, my favorite. Uh, Ankeny destination for coffee, and uh, I've gotten decaf all week. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Do you, like, do you notice your sleep being different? Um, not entirely yet, but uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot. There's a lot of factors that that affect it. One of them is, you know, how much I play on my phone <laughs> when I'm trying to go to bed. Um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's probably the the bigger of the two yeah. or three issues that I have with my current sleep. I might want to suppress the truth and continue to enjoy my coffee. <laughs> Whoa, that's very horrendous. That, oh, he just gave himself a horrendous. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, man, they're getting all their money's worth. I've already mentioned two books in this episode. Books and business. And I, well, I, it's not oh, even my book oh. yet. So okay, this is Andy, good. Andy, you got to go. Well, maybe I can keep asking you questions. You keep giving out these free book ideas. This is this is good. You never know. I mean, you got any more like crow killer ideas or that one? Was... I actually am putting a list <laughs> oh. of things together. For summer in left field, uh, oh, because oh. if you remember, Your summer listener, in left field was if you so remember good. last summer, we had some really wonky books. It was like <laughs> we had that discussion of like, what does way out in left field mean? And we talked about that off air, and we're like, maybe we should just do that in the summer. We should just read really weird books. And so that's what I'm I'm preparing for my summer books and business to be all left fielders. I'm so excited. You what? seriously, your left field is the most interesting left field I have ever been. <laughs> Like a part of or experienced. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Your yeah, left field books are like top uh, of the left field books. They're the top. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, what book do you have for books and business? I just, I'm, I'm a little bit interested if I keep going, if I can keep getting you to pull. Okay, all right, I'll you go. You've had too much caffeine. You're the, one, you're the one that told us you need to go. I do need to go. So I if you don't go. need to go. <laughs> no. All right, so this is the book I'm going to review. I'm almost done with it, and I love it. This is going to be a little bit longer of a books and business for me. Sorry, guys. It's called Art and Music, A Student's Guide, Reclaiming the Christian Intellectual Tradition, and it's by Paul Munson and Josh Drake. And this book is a guide, as it sounds, for students who want to learn about the basics of art. So I'm going to give you an example here when, if you remember this back in the day, I read How to Read Slowly by James Sire back in season one, and he talks about all the different types of reading, narrative, poetry, fiction, that sort of thing. 
And reading his chapter on poetry really helped me to understand the purpose of poetry. I'd never understood it before. So I'd read a poem and it was this weird, convoluted, sort of slightly emo thing. After reading his section, it really helped me to understand it. So this book is akin to that in that it helps you understand how art and how music work. Um, He starts off his first chapter with, what do we mean by the word beauty? Then he asks the question, why should we enjoy art and music? Then he wants to talk about how to judge art and music. And then the last two chapters are looking at art and listening to music. And the reason this book has taken me so long to read when it's only 117 pages and it's a little guide, it's meant to be very introductory, by the way, listener, is when you get to the looking to art, looking at art section, he requires you to stop and look at three different paintings he assigns you for 15 minutes and take notes. And he says, if you don't do this, everything in the rest of the chapter is not going to make sense. And so I literally had to wait until I had time to, for 45 minutes, do this. It was the best thing I've done in this like field in a long time. I loved it. I'm currently waiting to finish the music chapter because I've got to listen to three like three things of music. All right. So if I'm going to give you like a high point or like some, some, some tidbits, I would say that he defines art. He says this, he says, when people call something art, they're generally saying two things. First, that somebody made it. He says, we don't call an accident art. Like if you drop a bunch of glitter on the floor and it makes this pretty pattern, we don't call that art. We call that a really amazing accident. He says, secondly, its appearance has the potential to reward those who pay attention to it. That is, it can be appreciated for its beauty. He also says, um, there's a little bit of an apologetic slant in that chapter. He says, the materialist can't explain why the human soul responds as it does to the night sky or to the sound of the sea, or for that matter, to Rembrandt's denial of Peter uh, in the, there's a museum, I can't pronounce, or box gratias agmenes tibi, mass in B minor. So he's what he's he's actually making a slight low-key apologetic argument. All right, let me get to it. So in this one section, it's kind of a pivot point in the book, he references a very famous book called An Experiment in Criticism. Anyone know the author? Nope. Who is the author of the book you're talking about? Again, I forget. Art and uh, music. Munson and uh Munson and Drake, I think. I, I, think I was looking that. it up and I couldn't find it. Munson. Uh, Munson and Drake, yep. And it's Art and Music, A Student's Guide. Okay, so the author of An Experiment in Criticism is none other than C.S. Lewis. Ooh. And so it's really interesting. So Lewis makes this distinction between use and reception. And the book is worth the price just for this little tidbit from Lewis. So they walk you through the difference between using art and receiving art, and it literally hinges on are you trying to obtain the author's intention with the work, or are you just using it for your own purposes? So he gives some examples of when you watch a movie, you're wanting to be entertained, like you're using movies to entertain yourself. But when you go to an art museum, you're looking for that same kind of entertainment, but a lot of artists who create good art aren't doing that. They're trying to do something in your soul or teach you something or whatever. And so there's a shift in perspective. If you really want to understand art, you have to be humble and want to let the author's message come through, which means you might need to get in their head space or understand it from their perspective. That's probably like in a books and business. That's as far as I can go. I'm going to try to do a whole episode on this later, but I really like this book. I'm going to actually give it an eight on the Thinkling's goodness scale because 
Most people today don't understand these ideas. This is an entry-level book, but I know I'm going to have to read it more than once. I would actually be interested in working through this in like small groups with people. So I really like this book, Art and Music, A Student's Guide. It's not that big. It's not that expensive. It sounds like a really neat title to get a hold of. I'd be interested in it too. In fact, so what you do on Wednesday nights, Tim, in our kids' ministry where you are trying to cultivate the, the, the virtue of liking beauty and liking music, mm-hmm. this book aids, I think this would be a good aid for parents who want to understand art and understand it from a Christian perspective. I really like this book. Cool. Yeah, just point out that that's kind of some of the discussion we were getting into uh, a couple episodes ago with, uh, is a picture really worth a thousand words? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we actually had a listener, Randy Vodder. And so, Randy, I do remember you and uh, from Camp Eden out in Golden, Colorado. Oh, yeah. And uh, he, he had a question in the sense of, you know, when when a culture takes over a phrase, like we have used that phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words, mm-hmm. so many times, does the authorial intent even matter at this point? Which, uh, you know, maybe a teaser, we'll have to maybe have a a second discussion on that at another time. Like, when you pull a phrase out of its original context, and it may have been used, you know, erroneously or rationally, you know, a couple hundreds hundreds of thousands of times, but now someone just says it, and they don't even know what it originally meant, doesn't even matter what it originally meant. Is the author's intent even even a factor in art? Ooh, you know, so that plugs into what you're just talking about. Yeah. Uh, so uh, hopefully that you know satisfies or tickles Randy's imagination there because we'll come back to that and talk about that another time. We should, we should really talk about that. Yeah, because I I do think that's an interesting discussion, and I I don't even know what I would say about that yet. So have you heard of the song "God of Grace and God of Glory"? On your people, pour your power. You know that song? No. Okay, so it's a hymn. <laughs> Sorry, and that was a really so. Every time I try to do that, Robin makes fun of me because I can't do good at reduplicating songs. So that song is written by none other than Harry Emerson Fosdick, Ooh. who opposed Christianity. Shall the fundamentalists win? Okay, yep. And we sing his song. Is and it, so wasn't he a he wasn't a fuller guy, was he? No, he no. was a liberal. And he's he, in that era, though. Yeah, and he's so when um What's he was big, before Fuller. Who's the real? Who, who's Fuller? the oil tycoon who built him the church in New York City? Or Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefeller. Rockefeller builds him the church, and he's like against the fundamentalists because they are all about the like Bible being the Bible. Um, but we sing that in our, our church currently, and at times we sing it, and I'm like, wait a second, I think I know what Fosdick meant. But no one singing it today knows that, and so we sing it with totally other definitions. And I've wondered, like, well, I don't mean that. So, more fodder. So, we'll come back to that another time. Okay, so my book is not going to take as long. Uh, it's Ancient Orient and Old Testament by K.A. Kitchen. Uh, this book uh, was written a while ago, but it's instructive when it comes to archaeology and science and the Bible and how um, what is true and how do we figure out how to piece together what we find archaeologically with the Bible. Uh, for a long time, uh, higher critics and liberals, they argued that the um, that Deuteronomy was written later in about the 7th or 8th century because the, the, uh, the law code matched um, Assyrian law codes. And so they're like, hey, look at these comparisons. This must have been written in the 7, well, 7, 800, 900s B.C., and if you uh, believe that Moses wrote it, then you're thinking more along the lines of 1440 BC. So um, Kitchen went through, though, and he did a comparison between Assyrian law codes 
Hittite law codes and Deuteronomy and demonstrated that the Mosaic law code actually fits a Hittite uh, format, which would be dated back to 1440. Uh, Kitchen, also in this book, uh, highlights sev- uh, brought to light several other archaeological uh, proofs that argued for the, well, not argue for, but uh, confirmed or, or um, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, I'm blanking out on the word. Proved? No, I don't like the word prove. Verified. It uh, confirmed. Substantiated. Okay. Confirmed. It confirmed the Old Testament. Was that motion you made to like, we're not recording, we want to stop the recording? Might sound better that way. I think we just throw it all in there. Just go for it. What's the word you're going with? So Kitchen in Ancient Orient and the Old Testament argues that it confirmed the Old Testament. And he brings out several um, uh, different illustrations, the Hittite law code just being one of those. And that teaches us something just even about when we find something archaeologically or scholars discover some tablet or whatever, and they say this disproves the Bible. Um, We need to have discernment. And when we're seeing articles, newspaper articles, or even more scholarly journals along those lines, uh, you need to have discernment. There's a lot of speculation and a lot of pieces that we don't have when it comes to archaeology. And Kitchen demonstrated that a lot of proofs from ages ago that that critics of the Bible used against the Bible are actually very unfounded and even later used archaeology to confirm that the Bible was true all along. There's my books in business. It's an out-of-print book, Ancient Orient and the Old Testament by Kay Kitchen. If you get your hands on a used copy, then Merry Christmas. It's not Christmas yet, Tim. We will have a Christmas episode again. I, I recommend lots of things. I won't recommend, this. well, you, this one. Did yeah. you? I, I'm sorry. I, I just completely missed. Did you rank it? Um. So what would this be? Maybe like a four. It's a good book. It's good. It's not going to be like a big page turner. People aren't going to be super interested. It's a little bit more technical, lots of footnotes, but I found it helpful and I require some reading of this book in one of my classes. What class is that? Old Testament seminar. Ah, okay. You just taught that, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So I don't know if you mentioned that. I must have missed that too. No, I didn't mention it, but yeah, that's been keeping me busy, which is why my book's in business is this and not some new title that just came out. Well, hey, I'll, I'll mention a book that I also use for one of my classes. Actually, my only class as of this point. But I have a couple more in the spring, so more books coming. But So I mentioned a while back, uh, Doug Wilson, Rediscovering the Tools of Learning. And uh, he's that title is built off of Dorothy Sayers' essay, which we've also talked about, The Lost Tools of Learning. And he wrote this in the, I want to say the 80s or late 70s. And it's about, um, it's about education. It's about why he and his wife didn't want to send their kids to the public school. So they started a school called the, uh, depending on your pronunciation of Greek, either the Logos or the Lagos School. Um, <laughs> um, so essentially, I think it's a defense of classical Christian education, and then slightly underneath of that, uh, homeschooling, 
but definitely not a defense, actually probably an attack of public education. And so he has a section where he kind of looks at how bad public education is, and then he kind of unpacks uh, what Dorothy Sayers talks about, why classical education uh, maybe would be something we would want to target, and then what is distinctly Christian education. And so uh, for the, it's for uh, Christian education of youth, so fits right in with that. Um, but we just finished it this week, the, the class did, and so I read through the conclusions again, and um, yeah, I, I guess if you if you grew up like I did, where you went to public school for everything, uh, you know, and then uh, I went from public high school into private Christian college, and that's kind of your first taste of something different, and then now thinking through educational models, which I never really even knew, I mean, I knew people who were homeschooled, there were people from our church that homeschooled. And there were kids that were like dual enrolled and things like that. But I've never really thought through those models specifically. And uh, if you're interested in that, I think this is probably a pretty, a decent overview of, uh, of what classical education is. And uh, Tim and I, through trying to get this book for the class I'm teaching, we found out that uh, Canon Press is actually uh, redoing that book as we speak, and they'll probably they're going to do another print of it soon. So it's uh, rediscovering the tools of learning by Doug Wilson, and uh, I would I would say it's if you're really interested in classical Christian education, it's probably like a seven or an eight. If it is that the new one, that that's the title. That's the what the old Tim is holding up his iPad with a picture of the book on it, and that's what the the one looks like now. I wonder if they're going to redo it and make it look different? Or is that what it's going to look like? You had the title a little bit wrong. I said rediscovering, recovering right. the lost tools of learning. There we go. There we go. I thought it was rediscovering. You said that and didn't even bat an eye because that's yeah. what I thought it was. I actually went out and bought that because you were using it in class and then I found out it was out of print and I bought it. Yeah. I'm like, oh man. So and then <laughs> what's nice about that book is that it has Dorothy Sayers' essay in it. And so I think, I don't know if a lot of people know that. I mean, it obviously mentions it in the title, recovering the lost tools of learning, but Dorothy Sayers' essay is the lost tools of learning. And there's an appendix A in Wilson's book is Dorothy Sayers' essay. So you wouldn't need to buy multiple copies, which is what I did because I didn't know that. So I bought uh, a standalone of Sayers' essay and then I bought that and I was reading through it in preparation for the class and realized, wait a minute, it's here, which is nice for the student because then they didn't have to buy two books, they just had to buy one. Hmm. Um, That's really nice. But, uh, this is the description. Tim is holding it up from across the table. Well, this is a little different. This is the uh, modern public school system is bankrupt, intellectually, practically, and morally bankrupt. It's time to go back to an older way of education designed around the stages of a child's development. Yeah, that's kind of what I said. Look at the title of the book. This we can't is see it. this is this is under classical Christian education. His other book. And in this description, they call the book Rediscovering the Lost Tools of Learning. You're Wait, kidding. is it the same book? So I don't know what's happened, or you, you guys okay. can maybe look it's, it out. Maybe it's a rebrand. Mm-hmm. So Who knows? There's two, diff- there's two books, Recovering and Rediscovering, but That's do both of those things. They're good. <laughs> okay, so back to the book that I read, which <laughs> is Recovering the Tools of Learning. Did you, or did you read Rediscovering? No, I have the first one you showed. Okay. Yeah, the older one, not this newer one. It doesn't have classical education in the title. Okay. Um, I think it's a good assessment or a way of thinking through public school 
homeschooling, and classical Christian education. And uh, it'll at least get you thinking. And uh, uh, I don't know how many of my students listen to our podcast, but what I noticed is right away, students' biases came out because you know they would, they would become defensive of their own medium right away. And uh, I don't think I ever mentioned that to a student in class, but I could tell when someone was getting kind of riled up, like, why are you so, or why is Wilson so negative about public education, you know? And you could kind of sense it. And they have writing assignments to talk about the chapters, and I could sense it there too. And um, But yeah, if you're interested in any type of classical education or, or learning more about that, um, you'd want to read this book. I think it's worth your time. I I'd, I probably wouldn't rate it that high because it's pretty niche. Um, so I'd probably say like a four. Have we ever done decimals? Have we ever done decimals? Oh, brother. I'm going to say four and, and a half. Ooh. And so if That's you, a fraction. You can, you can round it up if you want to. It's a, it's You're going to do like 4.5? <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Right? You said four and a half, so I imagine like the one over two. So Yeah, mm. 4.5. 4.5. I like it. I like it. Then it's like a Richter Four and scale. Five, th- five hundred thousandths. Oh, okay. That's impressive. <laughs> That's a lot of math, too, for me. He's five hundred thousand, five hundred thousand millionths. <laughs> Wilson's getting, been getting shot at this week. I don't know if you followed it. Oh, yeah. I have seen some of that on Twitter. Wow. It's a mess. It's ugly. Yeah. Don't believe things from publications like <clears throat> Vice. I thought really? you were going to say Babylon B. Yeah, that one too. Don't believe things from the Babylon Bee. <laughs> Actually, you whatever have... the Bee says is probably going to come true. It's a prophetic. Yeah, yeah. Somebody over there has got the gift of prophecy. Anyway, you need to have a little, Christians need to have a little bit more prudence here to be a little more cautious about believing um, some secular article, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. Sure. Well, I mean, we went, we went like 20, this is at 26 minutes. I feel like we should just post this as its own episode now. I think it's because I had so much caffeine and so much. Yeah, sleep. you were on fire, and I was man. trying to get you to like keep sharing yeah, books. We had, a man. Lot of, we had a lot of stuff at the beginning, so uh, that's books and business. Now we're gonna have Andy talk about boredom, and then I think Tim has a devotional at the end of that episode. I do Deuteronomy six or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. it's probably from the Old Testament. So <laughs> I don't think he's ever. No, never mind. We got to be done. Okay. See you next week. <laughs> Let's have a conversation about boredom and diversion. I'm getting bored. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, Blaise Pascal is a, a French writer, thinker, apologist uh, who wrote in the lived in the 1600s, and he wrote a book. Well, he didn't write a book. He sort of wrote a book called The Pensée, which is thoughts in French, and he wrote the like he pulled together the information, wrote it all in little scraps of paper and he was collecting it to put it together. And then he died and people came into his room to find him dead. And then some of his friends found these piles of paper and thought, what is this? And they realized, Oh, it's a book. And he had numbers at the bottom of the pages. And so it's just really, if you want to read about it, it's really intriguing how they try to reconstruct this book and they posthumously published it. Well, he lived in the 1600s. He was a very brilliant guy, but he's very sickly. And so he's really well known for the wager, the Pascal's wager. If you've heard about that, we can talk about that another time. Um, He also developed the very first calculator. It was like a mechanical thing. He also, if you go to Paris today and you look at the transit map, a large section of that was designed by Pascal. So he's brilliant. He, um, in his day, the scientists were trying to figure out why Mercury behaved the way it did. And he was the one who cracked 
the barometric pressure issue. So he, he was just a brilliant guy. Well, he, he writes this book, Ponce. Now, again, he, he's writing it. He's working on it. He dies, and then people pulled it together. And what happened is he lived um, nominally as a Catholic. Uh, he had some bad life circumstances happen. And then he converts to Christianity. And after that, he abandons all his pursuits. He really wanted to be known for the calculator. And uh, actually, um, there's some computer language called Pascalian or Pascal something that goes back to him. He was trying to make a name for himself. And after that, he said, no, I'm done with academics. I'm, I'm really going to try to work to reach people. And so in his book, The Ponce, it's really intriguing. A lot of times, um, apologists build arguments for God's existence, or they build arguments to tear down other worldviews. But Pascal was doing something a little bit different, and it's intriguing. So he grew up having everything he needed. He was very sick, but his dad was really rich, and he was well off. And so he had all the things that he needed. And so when he didn't see himself needing anything, he really didn't have any interest in the Lord. I mean, he, he, he was nominal again. But it's when he realized how bad his life was without God that he started trying to think through those things and started paying attention. The backstory is uh, his mom dies when he's young, and he had two sisters who had to basically take care of him. One sister gets married and goes, oh, moves away, and now he's got one sister left. And then that sister decides to become a nun, and the dad says, no way, because she would have to give up her fortune to the, the convent or whatever. Well, as soon as daddy dies, she's like, okay, I'm going to go be a nun. And Pascal realizes he's going to be all alone, no one to take care of him. And it rocks him to the core of his being. Well, she eventually does this, leaves, and he's all by himself. And now he's going through this, he's kind of looking at his life, seeing how bad it is. And it was that that God used to sort of get his attention. So in his Ponce, he has this whole section on diversion because he identifies that a lot of times we divert ourselves, we try to entertain ourselves, and that, well, I'll just read. So he has this section on diversion where he says, I've often said that the sole cause of a man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. A man wealthy enough for life's needs would never leave his home to go to sea or to besiege some fortress if he knew how to stay at home and enjoy it. Men would never spend so much on a commission in the army if they could bear living in, their all, in town all their lives. And they only seek after the company and diversion of gambling because they do not enjoy staying at home. And so what he does is he plays around this idea with being discontent or being dissatisfied with life. And so what do you do when you're discontent or you're dissatisfied? You divert yourself. Basically, you're bored and you try to find something to entertain you. And so he says of these men, the only good thing for these men, therefore, is to be diverted from thinking of the way they are. Now, what he does is he points out that their lives are actually pretty terrible. Now, this is the genius of the book. The first half of the book, all he does is talk about how wretched people are. Now, that's not talking about you, Tim, or you, Charlie. You guys aren't <laughs> wretched. But what he's saying is, if you really stop to think about life, it's not that great. And his evidence is this. You have to have things to make it great. 
So if you don't get the job you want, now I'm using today ideas here. You don't get the job you want, or you don't have a house that you like, or you don't have a spouse that you want, or you don't have enough kids, you're going to say, oh man, my life's bad, so I need these things to make my life better. And what he's saying is, don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see what your true life is? Your real estate in life, you don't even like your life. It's not good. You're trying to distract yourself from it. And so what he wants you to do is he wants you to ask the question, why isn't life good? He says this, he said, imagine, you know, imagine uh, someone who gambles all the time. Uh, they, they go off and they gamble, all right? Or maybe they go off and they hunt or something. He says, when you do these things, it's not really that they bring happiness, nor is it that anyone imagines that true bliss comes from possessing the money to be won at gambling or the, the rabbit that is being hunted. No one would take those as a gift. He's saying people go out and hunt and people go out and gamble because they, they want the money or they want the rabbit. And he's saying, but actually that's not why they do it. He says what people want is not the easy, peaceful life that allows us to think of our unhappy condition, nor the dangers of war, nor the burdens of office, but the agitation that takes our minds off of it and diverts us. That's why we prefer the hunt to the capture. What he's trying to say is that people know their life isn't very exciting. They know their life. It's not just that you're bored. It's that you know your life is not that good and you're trying to distract yourself from it. So he gives a couple of examples. He talks about hunting. He says, imagine a guy whose wife just died and he's really inconsolable, but he's got to put food on the table. So he gets up the next day and he goes out to hunt. Well, if you went up to that guy, you'd notice that he's rich and he already has plenty of money. And you go up to that guy and you say, hey, look, I, I know that you're going to go out and hunt. You want to get a deer. What if I just give you the deer? Then you don't have to go and hunt today. The guy wouldn't rejoice. He would actually maybe oddly want to still go hunt. And that's because he's trying to distract himself. He says the same thing about the gambler. And again, he's not taking aim at hunting and gambling. He's trying to demonstrate that what you're doing is trying to distract yourself from your bad life. So he says the gambler, say the gambler gets up and says he wants to make a hundred bucks today. And you caught the gambler on his way out the door and you said, Hey, I know you really need a hundred dollars. Guess what? I'm going to give you a hundred dollars. That way you don't have to go gamble today. He actually wouldn't rejoice. He'd probably be a little dissatisfied if he had to not gamble. Now, Pascal is trying to say is that this boredom that people have, it's not just that you have nothing to do. It's actually an evidence that your life is not that good. Why is your life not that good? And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get these people who are apathetic to life and Christianity and eternal realities. He's trying to get these apathetic people to start thinking about eternal realities. He says, man is so unhappy that he would be bored even if he had no cause for boredom by the very nature of his temperament. And he is so vain that though he has a thousand and one basic reasons for being bored, the slightest thing like pushing a ball with a billiard cube will be enough to divert him. So it's really intriguing the way Pascal thinks about all these issues. He's really trying to point out that sometimes people are bored because their lives are not that good. So there's this poem by a man named William Auden that kind of says the same thing. It's from a it's a longer section from a poem called 19, September 1939, but I'll just read this one little bit here. It says this, Faces along the bar cling to their average day. 
The lights must never go out. The music must always play. Now imagine, I'm going to pause in the middle of the poem. What's that describing? Faces along the bar. My assumption is it's describing a bar, a drinking house, or a saloon, or something like that. And so here's all these people sitting at the bar having a drink. And they cling to their average day. It says, the lights must never go out. The music must always play. So there's always music. There's, I mean, today we might say the TVs have to be on, that sort of thing. The poem continues to say, Lest we know where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the dark, who have never been happy or good. I think what he's saying in that poem is part of the reason we want to distract ourselves is because we don't like to think of reality as it is. Now, Pascal's bigger point is this. If you try to live your life apart from God, it's wretched. And you're going to end up trying to distract yourself from how bad it is. Now, what he does in the second half of his book is he starts to just show how great life is when you are living for the Lord, like Christianity. And he just, he kind of plays around with it, not plays around, he, he thinks through the various aspects of life when you are walking with God. And then at the very end, or some, some versions will put the wager in the middle. That's when he brings out this Pascal's wager, because he's trying to get them you to say, this looks really good, and you already think your life's pretty bad, so don't you think you should at least look into this to see if it's true? He's not saying bet on God and believe that way. He's saying, don't you think you should at least think about it? Now, for him, you can kind of get this idea. Other than the health issue, he had everything he needed. His dad was rich. They had a house. They had, a, uh, uh, um, they had plenty of money. The dad uh, was a governor in France, sold his governorship for tons of money, and then he just pursued science as a hobby and a pastime. So Pascal had it all. You might think of him as like an upper middle class or an upper class youth. Just everything's fine, nothing's wrong. And so let's say you walk up to someone like that and you're like, hey, can I talk to you about the Lord? You understand you're a sinner and you need him? It may be that that person's like, I don't need the Lord. Like I remember trying to witness to a guy once and trying to say, man, as a Christian, my life is great. Like, and I wasn't trying to be arrogant. I was just trying to say, this is a really fulfilling life. Look at all these things. And it was like it bounced off the guy's forehead. And he's like, man, that is great, Andy. I'm really happy for you. I couldn't figure out why that didn't make any impact. Now, later on, I realized he drove a $100,000 BMW. He made six figures. He had, a, he had all that, like when I looked at his life, he had all the things. And so I think what Pascal is trying to do is he's trying to help people who think they have everything and are kind of apathetic. He's trying to get them to think through, do you really have all these things? Do you really? And his evidence is actually them and they can't live unless they're being bored. So he had lived a life of trying to be diverted, of trying to not be bored. And he recognized that it was an attempt in some sense to run away from the inevitable that he knew would happen. The inevitable was evil, the end, eternity. He despaired of it. He tried to escape it. So I think what he's trying to say in his book is that it would be more profitable for people to think about the inevitable death that is coming in the future rather than just, you know, distract yourself all the time. Okay, so what do you guys think about that? It's Ecclesiastes. Is that what you were thinking? No, that's not what I was thinking. Really? Oh. I was thinking Ecclesiastes, actually. Which, where in Ecclesiastes? 
Where? Yeah. Well, it's kind of, I mean, it, it's chapter it's, one and chapter not that, two. Not that I wasn't thinking about Ecclesiastes, but my mind, my mind went in another direction. It's like actually someone could be bored because they don't have a, a, a quote unquote good life. They're not content and they could actually entertain themselves with God. So like, I don't know if that makes sense, oh, yeah. that idea. Mm-hmm. Like they're bored yeah. with, with life, you know, again, quotes, bored, discontent. And so they, they pursue God as a means of alleviating their boredom, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then they don't find, he's not entertaining them anymore. And then what happens? He gets discarded. You know, I think a lot of people do that. Um, but the, whenever we talk about boredom, I had a, a youth leader uh, a long time ago share a quote with me, and it's that boredom is the sickness of a weak mind, Ooh. and I have no idea where that's from. Hmm. I don't think he knew where it was from, but I've never forgotten that. And, you know, when, when I get to a point of boredom in my life, you know, what, what's really going on is it is, it's, you know, you, you could parse that quote a lot of different ways, but boredom is, is an internal spiritual issue. It's not that there's not things that are worth my time. Yeah. And that's, I think that's his point is it's a spiritual issue when you're bored. Yeah. So anyways, Tim. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of a God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment apart from him. See, the Lord is the source of our pleasure, of our contentment, of our joy. And you don't need a lot to enjoy life. Um, the very things that Solomon mentions in this text, especially, I mean, earlier in chapter two, he talks about how he has everything. He's got anything that is high desires, but at the end of it all, it's like grasping for the wind and it's all just a puzzle. He can't figure it all out. Well, what do you have here in Ecclesiastes 2.24? A man should eat and drink and enjoy the good in his labor. Well, these are just like the basic parts of life. You eat, you drink, you work, and that you can actually enjoy life with uh, just those things. So like you started out with your beginning illustration of, um, uh, oh, what was it? I forgot now, but basically some... The hunter and the gambler. The Some mundane task. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That we're just doing to occupy our mind. Mm-hmm. You know, the pushing the billiard ball with the stick. Yeah. Yeah. And then even like, um, well, you don't have to go out and gamble. I'll just give you the hundred bucks. Anyway, you don't have to do it. And how the gambler wouldn't like that because mm-hmm. he needs something to divert himself. I wasn't going there with it. I was thinking originally, oh, well, you know, what was the other illustration he used? It was something. The like, hunter. It was a hunter. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. Hunter, right. who's hunter. In his his wife has died. He's yeah. really sad. I can so see a hunter saying, "You know what? I actually enjoy life, and I enjoy going out and hunting." Well, both both of those illustrations assume something about the person. It's assuming the motive that the yep. reason they're yeah. do, they're doing those things. And it's like I don't think he's making the point that everyone who does the activity has that motive, right? Yeah. But someone who could be seeking after those thrills is motivated out of, you know, I'll just call it boredom, discontentment. And if they are, you could you could prove it by, oh, you really love yep. gambling? Yeah. Here's a hundred bucks. Yep. I'll give you a hundred bucks to go home. And they won't. 
because yep. they need something to divert their attention. And I, and I will say, you know, and, and I think he, I, I'd be curious to read more about him, like if he actually, actually understood hunting, because I mean, every serious hunter knows it's not about killing something. Yeah. Like it literally is the chase. No, I don't that, know about that. Well, back in his then. day and age, yeah, in his day well, and hunting, age. Well, hunting was very different back then. Yeah. So I, th- and I think. Different culture. Yeah. Well, and I, what I would say is you're right about the motive ascription. He's ascribing motives, but again, so a little more context. So he was, he ran in some circles of some youths who they didn't live per se youths. like youths. I love that word. A profligate life. He wasn't like the prodigal son. They weren't, you know, doing that, but he did say he lived a, like a worldly time. Whereas he, I think the way he would say it is he was living for idols to satisfy him. So he wanted to make a name for himself scientifically. He wanted to, he, I mean, he think about it. He's all physically uh, weak and he gets sick a lot. When he, when he solved the barometric pressure problem with mercury, he set up the experiment in his home and invited a bunch of scientists. And he was so sick that he had to talk his sister through how to do it. So I think like he was trying to overcome and build his own life up himself. And I think what he's recognizing is that deep down he knew he had a bigger problem and he was trying to avoid it. So I think you're right. He's saying some people could be diverting or being bored. So so let me let me tee this up for you. Mm-hmm. What, what does someone do if this is them? Like maybe is there yeah. some scripture that would talk about that or well let me some ideas that yes. maybe so I have a passage. Let me let me say it like this. So you're the person who you have to check your social media one more time and you check it and there's nothing new and there's like a little bit of emptiness. Then later you just got to check it one more time or maybe that person that. But the ahead. reason they do that is because there's a dopamine response and they're actually like chemically addicted. That, so they're yeah. actually a victim. Oh my word! There's actually not a spiritual oh, problem. With wow! Them, right? Wow! You just you tee it up and then you just burn the tea down. What is exactly. this? <laughs> but that that you go to YouTube. I know. And you, no. you, you or Google this. That's exactly what they're going to read. Yeah, and and so what I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a worldly way of looking at something like you just brought up. But actually, it, it's okay. So you got the social media, or maybe you're on YouTube and you got to watch one more funny video or TikTok or whatever. Or maybe there's just this thing that you have to get one more, and every time you pursue it and you get it, it never really delivers. And you're like, and you find yourself saying, I'm bored, I'm gonna, whatever it is, get on Twitter, get on Facebook, get on social media, whatever it is. If that's you, then what I would offer for you is to consider if you are, can you recognize that there's something you're pursuing that no matter how hard you pursue it, it's not satisfying you. So in the book of Hosea, I would I would recommend that if that's you, and I've been this, this has been me, so I'm not speaking as an expert who's never struggled with this, but I would say that if that's you, I would read the book of Hosea. In Hosea, you have this account of Israel as they leave the Lord and they pursue its and they pursue other gods and other idols. And it's really intriguing how God deals with them. So in verse, uh, chapter two, verse seven, uh, this is, I, I admittedly, I'm just giving you a, a quick segment of this. I'm not giving the whole context, but you should go back and read it. 
Uh, I'll start up with verse six. So here, here they are, the Israelites are pursuing wickedness. And verse six, it says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. So this is the Lord opposing these people. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me there. And she did not know that it was I who gave her in there all these things that she thought she was getting from her illicit lovers. And the picture here is that um, God's people have turned away from him and pursued these idols. And it's not, And what God does is, in his mercy, he actually lets them pursue, but never lets them obtain the thing they're pursuing. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says this, and he's talking about the same theme. He says, They shall eat, but they shall not be satisfied. They will play the whore, but they will not multiply, multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which takes away understanding. And then he goes on to talk about their idolatry. Verse 12, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and a walking staff gives them oracles. But what I want to key in on there is that they're eating, so they're living for their food, their enjoyment, but they're not satisfied. It's like eating Doritos. I love Doritos. I'm never satisfied. I can eat the entire bag and I'm not satisfied. I just feel sick. And that's a beautiful picture of your idol in your life. You'll pursue it, you'll pursue it, you'll pursue it, and you're bored because it's never giving you that thing you're, you're going for. Uh, you play the whore, but you're not multiplying. Obviously, I think you get the impression impression there. So I would say that if you're the kind of person uh, and you find yourself constantly bored and constantly trying to divert yourself, it, it may be that you have a spiritual issue. It may be that that thing you're pursuing to take away your boredom, that diversion, it might be that there's a spiritual issue, issue deep down and perhaps you have an, uh, some idolatry in your heart. I'd recommend you read Hosea and pray about this and uh, seek the Lord. See if perhaps he's trying to let you see something about your heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books. Talk about them with your friends and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.